0: We're going to be in Daniel chapter 1. As you're turning there in your Bibles, would you mind joining me one more time for some prayer? Father, each of us come time today with the concerns and cares of our life. We've come in here. I see the many faces that that are represented here at Philippi. And I I recognize that every person is coming with a unique and specialized burden from their own life. From family issues to the strains at work to health concerns to navigating parenthood and marriage difficulties. There are so many stories that are represented in this room. And it's one of the core reasons, God, why I recognize that the task of handling your word is actually impossible apart from the working of your spirit. We are in need of you to minister to us. We come here this morning with hearts that need to hear not just the wisdom of men, but we need to hear your voice and the comfort of your Holy Spirit. God, we don't just need philosophical words of man's wisdom. We need the demonstration of your power to be at work in our lives. So right now, would you come and refresh our hearts with your spirit? Would you awaken our ears that we might hear your voice? That we might receive instruction for how to live in our own exile we might be shaped and changed by your words so that little by little we are being sanctified and changed into the image of your son. God, have your way. Our hearts are yielded to you. Our ears and our minds are open to the working of your spirit. Meet us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I listened to Sam's teaching from last week on the introduction to the book of Daniel, and man, I was so thankful for the way that he set things up and, and began to walk you through sort of the big picture idea of what is going on in Daniel. I especially appreciated the fact that he brought up that, that this is really a, a, a book that is focused on the kingdom of God, God's people in God's place, under God's authority, under God's power. And that the book of Daniel provides not just, you know, a a prophetic instruction manual for the end times or last things, but actually it it is a helpful book to help us know how to live in a world that is hostile to our faith, a world that God very much loves and wants to save and wants to redeem. And so the book of Daniel actually doesn't start, or the story of Daniel doesn't start with the book of Daniel itself. It starts clear back in the Torah and the first five books of the Old Testament. We are told in Deuteronomy chapter 28 uh, that, that while the Lord is slow to get angry with his covenant people, And that he warns them patiently of their sin's consequences. And he warns them through hardships. And though he's patient, his patience is not eternal. Persistent, impenitent, and flagrant covenant violation would get them expelled from the promised land. And he told them that up front before they ever set foot in the promised land at all. He warned them through Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 28. Let me hit some of the highlights for you. Deuteronomy 28, beginning at verse 32. If you disobey, these are the curses of breaking the covenant. If you disobey the covenant, your sons and your daughters shall be given to another people. While your eyes look on and fail with longing for them all day long. But you shall be helpless. A nation that you have not known shall eat up the fruit of your ground and all your labors and you shall be only oppressed and crushed continually so that you are driven mad by the sights that your eyes see. He goes on to say in verse 36, The Lord will bring you and your king whom you set over you to a nation that neither you nor your fathers have known. And there you shall serve the other gods, of wood and stone, and you shall become a horror, a proverb, and a byword among all the peoples where the Lord will lead you away. And again in verse 41 your sons, or excuse me, you shall father sons and daughters, but they shall not be yours, for they shall go into captivity. So God warned his people. He said, hey, listen, I'm going to bring you into the land of promise and, 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 and I'm going to bless you. You're going to live in houses that you didn't build. You're going to eat the fruit from vineyards and from olive trees that you never planted. And I'm going to bring you in. I'm going to prosper you. The only thing that is necessary is a vibrant, loving relationship with me. That's it. And if you abandon that, harm will come. Difficulty will come. And true to his word, God's patience with the northern kingdom of Israel ran out in 722 B.C. Israel was exiled to Assyria. Uh, you can find that story in 2 Kings chapter 17, verses 7 to 23. And the Lord's patience with the southern kingdom of Judah ran out about 120 years later. According to Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 1, this took place in the fourth year of Jehoiakim when Nebuchadnezzar came in and began to... Invade Israel about 604, 605 BC. Now, Babylon had gained control of the Middle East a year earlier in, in 605 and was forcing Judah to serve the empire as a vassal state and to pay tribute. Uh, to, to Babylon, according to 2 Kings chapter 24, verse 1, uh, the, the king was really just a puppet, and he was, it was his job to collect money from the people and send it back to Babylon to support uh, that, that invading country. Matter of fact, this was a fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy about Judah going into Babylon, and, uh, and, and that prophecy that he gave was beginning to come true. And Jeremiah, who was a temporary a contemporary of, of uh, Daniel, he also witnessed this coming true, that God's promise that if they had abandoned their covenant relationship with him, their loving relationship with God, that there would be consequences, that they would be led away into captivity. And so Jeremiah was constantly telling the people of Israel about this. Despite having received many chances to turn from idolatry, Judah rejected the word of the Lord. And in Jeremiah chapter 25, verses 1 through 14, Jeremiah says, for 23 years I've been warning you. And I daily have been out here telling you, judgment is coming if you don't repent. But they would not listen. And so, in fact, judgment did come. Now, as is the case always, though, throughout the history of God's people, though Israel had strayed from God nationally, there was always among the Israelites this remnant of people, people who didn't compromise, people who were faithful to God, faithful to keep the covenant. And it appears that Daniel belonged to a family who maintained covenant faithfulness. He belonged to such a family that that in the midst of moral compromise all around them and, and covenant compromise, this family apparently invested in their son Daniel and said, no, that others may, but we will not. There might be compromise happening, but we're going to live this way because God has called us to live this way. And this is what it looks like to have a loving relationship with God. And so, I want to paint a picture for you before we dive into the text here of, of life before Babylon. For most of his life, Daniel had grown up in the community of faith. As a young boy, he had likely been taught the the very many songs that the spiritual leaders of Israel used to help young people memorize the torah matter of fact if you if you go to Israel, one of the things that you 'll see is really fun a lot of times in your hotel when you go to have dinner at your hotel uh there there's a mixture of like pilgrims christians there's uh, you know, like Hasidic Jews and, and traditional Jewish culture, all mixing it up, eating in the same area in uh, the bottom of your hotel. And then every once in a while, you'll see a young boy who is going through his bar mitzvah uh, at the same time. And so he's required at the meal then to stand up, and he sings in Hebrew a, a song. And that song is actually a quotation of Scripture. And this is the kind of culture that Daniel grew up in. This is what he he grew up with, singing scripture, memorizing the first five books of the Torah, of the Bible. He regularly attended communal celebrations that commemorated the amazing events of Israel's history. Think of Passover and Sukkot, festivals in the fall, the Day of Atonement, the celebration of the New Year. These were all commanded in the scriptures. And, and, and Daniel had this regular rhythm throughout the calendar year of, of acknowledging that God was the author of this nation's story. And they were remembering that continuously. And as he grew up in that family, he commemorated those things as well. In fact, his family probably resembled life in the average Christian home here in the United States. In fact, his his family probably reg- regularly gathered on Sabbath days to hear teaching and instruction from the scriptures. He likely had restrictions about what he could and could not do in interacting with the pagan world around him. Do this, don't do that. You can touch this, you can't touch that. You can eat this, you can't eat that. This is all a part of his upbringing. He had rhythms of rest built in where this young Israelite family would work hard for six days but then take one day a week off to celebrate all that God had done and all that he had provided in their lives and to simply just be with God and be thankful. The scriptures were regularly discussed and applied to the lives of his family and and the families that were faithful to the covenant promises of God and the covenant commitments of God that gathered each Sabbath day. They listened, his friends, his neighbors, the the tight community in a culture of rebellion that he belonged to, that listened to the scriptures and allowed them to have authority over their lives. In fact, the entire identity of the families he grew grew up with was derived from being a part of God's covenant community he grew up thinking that this way of life is right now and will always be this way. You think about that, the perception of a child, right? Growing up in that, it's like, this is what life is. It's all I've ever known and it's all it will ever be. That's the way that Daniel thought as a young person. You know, Daniel was probably just a young boy at the time that the Babylonians invaded Israel. His family was either likely slaughtered or taken as POWs before he was taken away captive to Babylon. No doubt, the trauma of war left an indelible impression on this young man's heart and on the hearts of all of those young people carried away in chains. And the book of Daniel, this book that we're embarking on a study of right now, is... The product of a life with God in captivity, in exile. A time where, from Daniel's perspective, the dominant culture around him was overwhelming. The dominant culture around him was not was not reverent to Yahweh at all had no desire to follow him he was one of many conquered gods from their perspective Daniel was in the minority culture while in exile See, the Babylonian captivity was one of the great turning points of Israel's history. The people of God had been troubled by many nations before, from Egypt to Assyria. However, the one thing that had remained the same was that the dynasty that was established by God under the rule of King David and his descendants had always maintained power over the throne which meant that while there was a Davidic king on the throne in Israel, there was this hope of the kingdom being established. The kingdom that God promised would be established through David. So as bad as the culture got, they had this... Yeah, but a descendant of David is still on the throne. The promises are still in effect. We're going to be okay God is good, but now with the captivity, now with the exile, it is Babylon that is in control of the throne. It is no longer a descendant of David. Jehoiakim and his son Jehoiachin uh, end up staying in power for a very short time, but through the rebellion they are dethroned. And the question that is presented to all of Israel and to those raised with this understanding of God's covenant promises and how he will establish his kingdom is, are the promises still valid? Is God still in control? So, there's the setting for the book of Daniel. And, and there's very practical instruction for us to be obtained. Matter of fact, the, the book of Daniel most of the time is looked at as a, this sort of uh, you know code prophecy book where you you go through and you you try and figure out well this beast corresponds to this nation and you're, you're trying to like match everything. It's like a Christian Sudoku, right? And that's, that's how a lot of people perceive the book of Daniel, but it's so much more than that. First of all, I want you to take note of this. If you're a note taker, you should know that the book of Daniel is hope literature. It's hope literature. Daniel provided the promise that life would not always be lived in exile. The things that Daniel spoke reminded the people of God that though this is tragic and this is terrible and we're undergoing the punishment of God right now, it is not forever. God will restore, the kingdom will come back around, and you can trust the Lord to keep his promises. And when this happens, when the the kingdom is restored, God's people will once once again be in God's place, submitted to God's rule or God's power. Second thing you should note is that Daniel is didactic literature. That is, Daniel is providing an example or an instructional for how to live in exile without being conformed to Babylon's system. So in Daniel when you're looking at how Daniel responds to to the, these powers that are over him these governing authorities that are pushing him towards compromising his faith you see times where Daniel is okay with some of the, the the requirements that are placed upon him a new name a new education he's okay with that right but then there's other times in the book of Daniel where he and his friends say no we can't do that that's too far You're asking us to compromise our relationship with God, and we can't do that. So it was instructions. It was didactic literature teaching people how to live under exile. Daniel and his friends were sent to Babylon by the decree of God and given instructions for how to live there by the prophet Jeremiah, who told them, plant vineyards, build houses, have children, and pray for the city that you live in. Pray for God's peace over it so that you can have peace while you live there. And thirdly, it was triumphant literature. The hope it offered to those in exile was the knowledge that while everybody thinks that Babylon is in control, it's God who's pulling the strings. God is still in control. Even in Babylon, God is still in control. Though Israel was under the discipline of the Lord, God still had a plan to build his kingdom, establish his king, and redeem his people. And none of that was affected by any world power. It doesn't matter who was sitting on an earthly throne, God himself still rules from the throne that runs the universe. And it was triumphant literature. What you see is the the kings and the kingdoms being toppled throughout the book of Daniel. You see that the eternal kingdom rises to the surface and God is in control. And so, as Daniel pens these words and as as he tells his story of his experience in exile, people are learning to put their hope in those things that are eternal, unshakable, and immovable a kingdom that cannot be shaken. So, I want to give you an outline for our first seven verses. Very long introduction. Sorry for that. Outline is simple. If you want to give this a title, it would be Exiled by the Will of God. Exiled by the Will of God. Verses 1 through 4, The Devastation of Exile. And verses 3 through 7, The Dilemma in Exile the devastation of exile, verses 1 through 4, and the dilemma in exile, verses 5 through 7. So let's talk about the devastation first. Verses 1 through 4 sort of summarize the devastation of this new reality of life under exile, or life in exile, under captivity in Babylon. Let me read it to you. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and he besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. So here's, here's the results. Here's the devastation that comes as Babylon invades under the reign of Jehoiakim. What happens is they lay siege against the city. They subjugate Jehoiakim. And now Judah is under the control of Babylonian rule in verses 1 through 2. The temple then is also sacked And it's stripped of some of the items in there of worship, things of value, things made of gold. And it's carted all the way back to Babylon, to the land of Shinar. And it's placed in a pagan temple as a trophy to say, look what our God did to their God. And the best and the brightest of the youth are hauled off captive To Babylon. And now all of a sudden the throne of David is under pagan rule and it looks like God's kingdom, his people and his promises are defeated by the pagans and their gods. And life under Babylon is not easy. In the year 605 BC under the reign of Jehoiakim, Nebuchadnezzar, the heir apparent of the throne of Babylon invades. And but he forces Jehoiakim into submission. And by way of historical background, it's important to know that there were actually three different times where Nebuchadnezzar comes in and he, he punishes Israel. He overthrows the government. The first time happened in 605, a little more than a hundred years after the northern kingdom of Israel had fallen to the Assyrians. And the second invasion occurred in 597 when Jehoiakim, the son of Judah, was mentioned here in Daniel uh, 1 verse 2, or 1-1, was compelled to surrender Jerusalem and to go into captivity along with them, And he was carted off along with the, his family to Babylon. Uh, including, uh, included in that second uh, invasion, the second reaping from Judah, were uh, Jewish leaders royal family, commanders of the army, craftsmen, and even some of the priests, like Ezekiel. Ezekiel was carted off to Babylon as well, and he writes from Babylon uh, as a contemporary of Daniel as well. And then the third invasion was the one that history remembers most. It took place in 586 B.C., and that's when Jerusalem was completely destroyed, and the people of the land were deported to Babylon. Many fled to Egypt, and Jeremiah Records that for us. He was in Jerusalem at the time of this final destruction of the city. So as as the book of Daniel opens here, it's important to take note of something that that you might have missed when we read through it here. It says, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and he besieged it. Verse 2, and the Lord gave Jehoiakim the king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. Who? The Lord. It was the Lord that gave Israel into the hands of their enemies. There is this Reality that is not easy for us to confront, and that is that God is God. And He makes choices to do as He pleases, what brings Him glory. Now, it's for our good, that's true, but that doesn't mean that it feels good. The discipline of the Lord is not pleasant, we're told in the book of Hebrews. Nobody really likes it. But afterwards, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness for those who are trained by it. That's what we're instructed. That God, in his love for his children, will, in fact, discipline them. In Jeremiah 25, verse 9 In talking about the coming invasion, he prophesies that it will be Nebuchadnezzar who comes in and invades Israel. And he even calls Nebuchadnezzar in verse 9 his servant, God's servant. Though this is not something easily seen from the human perspective, God is ultimately in, in control of world affairs, even evil kings and despots. That he's ultimately steering the ship. Now you say, wait wait, wait a minute. Jeremy, I don't know if I can get on board with this. Because you see the the, the evil that is perpetrated on, on the world around us. How can God be in control of that, letting that happen? How does that take place? Well, the only thing that I can point to, really, is the cross. You see, there's this this reality that God uses the evil choices of the world for His own divine purposes. Even sin, He uses for His own divine purpose. Nothing is beyond His ability to redeem and to use for His glory. Perhaps you'll remember in Acts chapter 2 when the leaders of the temple who had killed Jesus and the, the Romans who executed the Son of God... They, they, they thought that they were acting out of their own sinful hearts. They were acting out of their own sinful hearts. They were making choices uh, uh, about what to do with Jesus, the Son of God. They rejected his rule. They re- rejected his authority. And, 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 and they killed the Son of God on a cross. And in Acts chapter 2, when Peter stands up to proclaim the gospel... God, in his sovereignty, uses even the evilness and the wickedness of the world to accomplish his purpose. And he's going to use an evil king, Nebuchadnezzar, who will attribute his victory to his own pagan deity, his own demonic God. He's going to allow that. God will allow that to take place in order to use Nebuchadnezzar to discipline his children. This is the great wrestling point of the prophets so many of the times. Habakkuk, his name means wrestler. This is what he's wrestling with. God, how can you use the wicked to judge the righteous? His whole book is devoted to that very topic. This is what's happening in the hearts of of God's people as they wrestle with the fact that God will sovereignly use evil for his divine purposes. So one of the first things to note about how Daniel can be instructive for those living as exiles is to see that God is in control while they are in captivity. It is God who is steering the ship. It is God who gives victory to Nebuchadnezzar. It is God who has them carted away to Babylon. It is God who is using them in Babylon and directing them for his glory in the presence of Babylon. It is God who shuts the mouths of the lions and quenches the fire around the four friends. It is God who is saying ultimately... Nebuchadnezzar, you think your kingdom's going to last forever. It's going to be toppled. There's only one kingdom that will last forever. It is God who is in control of human history. And that is comfort to those in captivity. When they realize, hey, we are here by the hand of God, it is comfort to them to receive that knowledge. Both Daniel and Esther demonstrate the faithfulness of God and the presence of captivity. The sovereignty of God while Israel is in captivity. So you see, the sovereignty of God means that he can and does use whatever he wants, whenever he wants, for his divine purposes. He is the final authority. By the way, something to keep in mind when the next election season rolls around and everybody's freaking about it freaking out about who's in power next. The throne has not changed. We don't have to get caught up in all the, the stuff that goes on online and the weirdness that happens at family reunions. and we, like, we, we don't have to do any of that. Why? That throne's eternal. One person sits on it, and he's in control of it all. We can trust him in that. So, Daniel and his friends are carried away as captives to Babylon. This would be a part of the Babylonian strategy for subjugation. Now, unlike the Assyrians, the Assyrians had this this thing. Whenever they invaded a territory, what they would do is they they would take... People from this territory and they would move them over to this other conquered territory and they would take people from that conquered territory and move them over to this one and then take people from that one and move it to it, would just mix all the people up, right? And that was a way of sort of getting rid of their cultural identity and, and it helped prevent uprisings against their authority. So that's the way the Assyrians did it, but the Babylonians they, they took a different tactic. What the Babylonians liked to do is they would come and they would grab the best and brightest of a culture that they had conquered. They would cart them away to Babylon and re-educate them, make them Babylonian. So they looked Jewish, but they thought and lived Babylonian. And once they were re-educated enough, we, they could send them back into their home territory and use them as an extension arm of Babylonian rule in that ter- ter- territory. A lot of thought went into this. They're not dummies, right? They're like, how do we conquer a people and keep them conquered? We'll use their own people to rule over them so they still think that they have a measure of control, but the people who are ruling over them are representatives of Babylon. So, Daniel and his three companions are among these first captives taken from the nobility of Judah. And in selecting these youths, for re-education in the king's court in Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar is accomplishing several objectives. Those carried away captive were will serve as hostages to keep the royal families and the noble families in line to remind them, hey, your family could be hurt. Don't, don't step out of line here. It was a threat. But also... Uh, you, The the presence of these captives served as sort of trophies in Babylon. So when you bring these captives back, your city, Babylon, goes, Yay, look at us. We, We killed everybody. We're the conquerors. We're the victors, right? And then further, through careful training and education, they could prepare these young people to be his servants that might serve Nebuchadnezzar well in later administration of Jewish affairs. Now the specifications for those selected are carefully itemized here in Daniel chapter one, verse four. Ashpenaz is told to collect these young people. In verse four, they should be youths without blemish, of good appearance, skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's place, palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. So they, they had to be good looking. Why do you think that is? Because they've got plans for them. They want them to be attractive and to appeal. There's a a focus on outward appearance in Babylon. They should be skillful in in wisdom, endowed with knowledge. They have to be smart. They have to be capable of learning. Why? Because they're going to have to learn a new language. They're going to have to learn new customs and a new culture. And if you have a dum-dum up there, it's going to take longer or not be possible at all. By the way, did you guys know that uh, for our military, if you don't score over a certain level of intelligence, you, you can't get accepted into the, the military. That, the reason for that is because they recognize that if you don't at least meet this minimum bar of intelligence, uh, you cannot be trained. To, to overcome that, like you've hit the ceiling of what you're able to do. So, training is not gonna help you because you're dumb. Uh, now, listen, what's terrifying about that is that that's actually, I think it's like 7 to 10% of our country. So, one out of every 10 people that you meet. Like, that's, that's pretty scary. Okay? And, and here's what's happening here in Babylon. They take the best and the brightest because they know these are the people we can retrain, we can re-educate, we can shape them, and we can use them for our purposes. They have, have to have capacity for understanding. And their ability to learn is necessary. Babylon has plans for them and in a word, their total physical, personal, intellectual capacities as well as their cultural background were all factors in choosing them for re-education. And the training supplied, however, was to separate them from their previous Jewish culture and environment and teach them the learning of the tongue of the Chaldeans. This was the re-education program that was constructed to take away their cultural identity of these young people. Babylon needed them to look Jewish, but think and act Babylonian. And the question for these young people that are, are, that are carted off here is this. Will the seeds that were planted by their families and spiritual leaders, the seeds planted in their community of faith, Were the seeds that were planted in them still continue to grow when they are removed from that environment and immersed in Babylonian culture? That's the question. And the book of Daniel tells us that there's a lot of people who did compromise. But there were some who continued to walk with the Lord in that foreign land. The next few verses help us to understand the challenges that Daniel and his friends would face in captivity. Here's the dilemma that the exiles to Babylon faced. Verses 5 through 7. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. And they were to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the, and the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. So here, here's the challenge. Now they're in this new place. They've got the challenge. If you're taking notes, this is a part of their dilemma. They have the challenge of a new location. Daniel and his friends are no longer in a faith bubble. They're immersed in Babylonian culture. And they have the challenge of a new culture. This is Babylon is a melting pot of ideas, religions, races that that, that Daniel and his friends are are now immersed in. And with every new nation and new idea and new God comes this swirling pot of, of ideas that they have to sort through and wrestle with in the culture that they're now a part of. They have the challenge of a new identity. They are renamed. Daniel and his friends are renamed and re-educated in order to strip them of their roots. And they have the challenge of a new pressure. Will they conform? And the challenge of a new family. How will they find fellowship in a strange and foreign land? Fellowship was an option in Jerusalem, but it's absolutely necessary in Babylon. So let's, let's take a look at those. The, the challenge of a new location, everything about Babylon was unf- unfamiliar. When the young men from Israel arrived in the city of Babylon, it was like nothing that they had ever seen before growing up in Judea. The, the walls of Babylon, and in particular, the Ishtar Gate, were on the list of the seven wonders of the world. In uh, the 43 years of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar made the most of his time employing a vast army of slave labor to surround his city with walls so thick that you could have multi-chariot races on the tops of the walls, and they did. These walls stretched 56 miles in length, encircling an area of 200 square miles, The bricks of the walls were faced with bright blue and bore an inscription, I am Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. So at least he was humble. (laughs) Nebuchadnezzar created a city which was not only wondrous to behold, but also the center of arts, intellectual pursuits. Women enjoyed equal rights with men under Nebuchadnezzar's rule, though we we would balk at some of the standards. Uh, by um, a modern standard, schools and temples were were plentiful. Literacy was high. Mathematics and craftsmanship flourished among among uh, the people. There was a high level of tolerance of and interest in other gods of other faiths. And Daniel and his friends would be exposed to more ideas and cultures than they'd ever dreamed existed in the little Judean city in which they grew up in, in the home that they called Israel. The food tasted different. The smells were different. The people spoke a different language. The people dressed different. The people thought differently. And everything about the way that things used to be was now different. And Daniel and his friends are no longer in a faith bubble. They're no longer in the majority. They're now in the minority. And they're immersed in that culture and they go, how do we navigate this in faithfulness to God. So the challenge of a new location, the challenge of a new culture in this new land, no one values the things that Daniel and his friends grew up valuing. It's weird that you eat that way. It's weird that you rest that way. It's weird that you dress that way. It's strange. Why don't you be more like us? The pressure that is upon them, the idea that there could be only one God was laughed at. It was laughed at even more because of the fact that the Israelites had been defeated in battle and Yahweh was conquered and the archaic deity for a small-minded group of backwater communities in Israel was now, his temple had been sacked and the items from that temple were now in a pagan temple. You guys are the losers. How can you think that your God is so great? How can you follow him? Obviously, your God's not that powerful because look at where you are. Now in the city of Babylon, the most influential place in the world, their ideas and their values seem small, seem outmoded, outdated. Part of this was due to the fact that Babylon was filled not just with Babylonians, but but captives from every other culture that they had conquered in battle. Babylon, Babylon became this melting pot of races and religions and ideas. And the exclusivity of Daniel's one true God would have not only been rejected, but considered offensive in a place where so many cultures and religions were seeking to get along. How strange, how disorienting. For Daniel and his friends to come from a life that centered on the worship of God, the worship of Yahweh, a life like they had enjoyed and grown up with, and and now for that all to be considered irrelevant or narrow-minded, to go from feeling like you were in the majority to now being a small minority was probably quite a shock to these guys. Think about how their perception would have to change. You know, we're all constructed in such a way that, that the, the pressure to belong to the majority is great. There's a lot of pressure. Sociologists call this a herd mentality. They think it's related to like a, a, a protective instinct or a survival instinct, where like if, if I'm a part of the larger community, the larger group, that if battle breaks out or something happens, I have a, more resources to pull from and I can. I can be safe. This melting pot of ideas and religions and races that Daniel and his friends are now immersed in will have a strong pull towards compromise. And the question is, will Daniel be faithful? They have the challenge, not only that, but of a Uh, uh, the challenge of a new culture, but a challenge of a new identity. The tactics employed by the Babylonian government was to strip the captives of their identity with their culture and their origin. The Babylonians required their captives to take Babylonian names, to speak Chaldean instead of their native tongue, and to be educated under Babylonian philosophies and sciences. And all four of these Hebrew men had names that were connected to their faith in, in God. The meanings of these names were significant. Each of the four had been given names by their parents that honored God, but the Babylonians wanted them to be identified with one of the false gods. And so Daniel, whose name meant God is my judge, was assigned the name Belteshazzar, which meant favored by Bel, one of the pagan deities of Babylon. Hananiah's name meant beloved of the Lord. And he became Shadrach, illumined by Rak, the sun god. Mishael, his name means who is as God. It's a boast about who's like the Lord. And he was called Meshach. His name was changed to who is like Shaq, the sun, sun, no, the, the Babylonian Venus, excuse me. And then Azariah, his name meant the Lord is my help. And his name was changed to Abednego, which means servant of Nego, the god of fire. This was a form of brainwashing. That's what's happening here. They're being stripped of their cultural identity and their belief in God. And they are set up to endure that. They just need to adjust in captivity and forget the hope of going back. Whatever you grew up with as a captive was taken from you. And you were forced to embrace this new identity as a Babylonian. Growing up, your family was your community. Now that that community is gone, and you're a foreigner who sticks out and doesn't belong, what was familiar became unfamiliar, and even foreign. Uh, and and even foreign as you adapted to the life uh, in Babylon, the feeling that everything is unknown, unfamiliar, and foreign could easily have given them a reason to try and just fit in to try and just adjust. Like if you just, we compromise a little bit, at least we can belong here and we can, we can get along, right? And, and we'll, we'll feel like we fit. We'll feel like we have a people, but no. The question is, will they be faithful to God in the midst of Babylon? And they have the challenge of a new pressure. Conform, let go, compromise, give in. And Daniel and his friends grew up in a community where the ideal was that they should be devoted to God. And the social pressure for them growing up was to identify with God and follow Him. And now everything is flip flopped, and the pressure around them is the exact opposite. Forget about God, forget about your culture, forget about the promises, and just go with the flow. Live for now. Don't live for the kingdom. Don't live for what God says. The struggle that we all face, even right now, in the present culture in which we are immersed in is not unlike the difficulties of Babylon. We're experiencing life in exile. There used to be a time here in our country where Christianity was sort of the dominant culture, Right? And if you're old enough, you maybe even remember that where it was like things were infused with talk about God, even if there wasn't an actual belief in God. But now things have flip-flopped, and you're weird. You're an outsider. You're then you're in the minority to actually truly believe those things and hold to those values. And the question is, will you let go? Will you compromise? It's going to take discernment to know where to draw lines. And that's why they have the challenge of a new family. Now that Daniel and his friends have been displaced and taken to Babylon, everything has changed. And among these changes, a serious challenge arises from this crisis. The serious challenge is this, starting new primary relationships that will take the place of their missing family. The options for socializing and being involved in this progressive society will be numerous. And the problem is that most of the options include some level of compromise to the values that Daniel and the boys grew up with. In order to still hang on to their heritage, these young people will have to find primary friendships and relationships with the same values. In the providence of God, Daniel and his friends came into contact with one another. They found friendship in each other. They clung to faith together and encouraged one another, prayed for each other, and stood with one another when the rest of the world was bowing their knees. Daniel apparently takes the lead on that. We'll see that in the coming verses. But these, the friendships of these four young men show us that when one person is willing to take a stand, others find their courage as well. Finding a new set of relationships in Babylon wasn't easy. But when Daniel chose to stand for God, the others who carried the same values were drawn to him and were willing to take the same stand as well. Listen, in Jerusalem, friendships were a lovely option. In Babylon, friendships and fellowship and deeply knowing each other and and spending time in prayer together and, and talking about the word of God together was absolutely necessary for survival. Absolutely necessary. As we close our passage today, I want to remind you of a few things. God led his people into this time of captivity. It was disciplinary on the one hand, but also a part of God teaching the nations through his people. God is using the presence of Israelites who are faithful to their covenant with Yahweh in Babylon to demonstrate who God is to Babylon. And as a matter of fact, the same king, Nebuchadnezzar, who... Thinks that he triumphed over the God of Israel, ends up surrendering to the God of Israel in the book of Daniel and declaring he is God above all others. That's the reality. God brought them there, he sustained them there, and he used them there in that captivity. It was by the will of God that they were sent there. I want to give you three quick or four quick applications. Ready? Real fast. We're in exile. What can we learn from Daniel from the first seven verses? First of all, parenting is important. Parenting is important. Parents, you're laying the foundation for your kids to live as future exiles. The training that you do at home can sustain them as they get older. Don't slack off on it, be diligent. Take it seriously. Prepare them to be self-sufficient in their relationship with God. Not dependent upon you and not riding on the coattails of your faith. Teach them how to pray. Teach them how to worship. Teach them how to be connected to God themselves. Parenting is important. Till the soil of their hearts, ask questions, teach critical thinking skills, plant seeds, apply the gospel and the word of God, water it in with prayer, and ask the Lord of harvest to bring fruit from your labor. Number two, examine your own cultural influences. Listen, the re-education system that we are living in is powerful. Powerful. And it's good for us to examine how much of the Babylonian mentality has crept into our own hearts, crept into our own lives. It's good for us to examine the degree to which we are shaped by the values of God's kingdom and the degree to which we are shaped by the world around us. Examine your own cultural influences. Thirdly, define your citizenship. Define your citizenship. Whose kingdom do you belong to first? Hopefully not the United States. If you give that as an answer, it's the wrong answer. You belong to the kingdom of God first. Who is king? Hopefully not your feelings. Hopefully not the pressure of being accepted around you. God has to be king. And if you resolve those two issues, decisions become very, very clear. What honors God first? As a consideration. Fourthly. Fellowship is essential. Not optional. What you guys do here. Your time of gathering. And praying through the Psalms the moments where you learn gospel fluency, the things that you do in fellowshipping, the times where you mix it up outside of here and you meet with somebody for coffee or you entertain a text thread or you, you have a phone call with a friend and you pray for each other and you encourage each other. This is essential for your survival in a world that is hostile to your faith. It's not an option. It's necessary. The sand comes up to lead us in worship here. Would you pray with me one more time? Father, I, uh, I think about the, this, this captivity and, and Daniel and all that his friends experienced. And I got to be honest, Lord, there's so many parallels to our own experience here. There's so many places where, where we feel the pressure of being accepted by the culture around us, where we feel like old and archaic people because our values do not match the ever-changing values of the world around us. And, God, we feel the pressure to compromise. We feel how necessary fellowship is for our well-being. We feel the pressing need to invest in our kids and our families and to teach them how to think and how to know you, how to love you, how to follow you. God, we feel the presence of a world that is constantly calling us to be conformed to its image and yet at the same time the spirit inside of us that is calling us not to be conformed to the world but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds so Lord shape us we're in exile here by your will for your glory for your purpose it's good for us that we are afflicted It is good for us that we have to make a stand. It is good for us to have to examine the ways in which the culture has influenced our lives and to repent and have to change our ways, to stand up as missionaries to Grant's Pass and to to Murphy and and Merlin and the, the places around us. God, it is good for us to value your kingdom more than the acceptance of others. Lord, shape us by your word. Use us as a kingdom outpost for your glory. You've sent us here as exiles to this city, to this world, so that others like Nebuchadnezzar can come to know you. Use our lives for your glory. In the name of Jesus, amen.